Hello, welcome to the Daily Journal podcast. I'm Howard Miller, a contributing editor and podcast host uh, for the Daily Journal, and we welcome you to listen to this hour. If you'd like to obtain CLE credit for the hour, it is very easy. This podcast is available both on the Daily Journal website and outside the Daily Journal website on the site dailyjournal.com. So if you go and search for dailyjournal.com, a page will come up, including this website, including this podcast. And in addition, there will be a CLE test on that same page that you can take and send into the Daily Journal and obtain one hour CLE credit. It's a very exciting podcast today, and we're delighted you've joined us. Our guest is Jeffrey Benz. Jeffrey is not only an American lawyer admitted in several states and a British barrister, but he is one of the most accomplished mediators and arbitrators in the international arena. He's a neutral at JAMS, works both in Los Angeles and in London. He has mediated and arbitrated countless international sports and entertainment uh, issues. Uh, he is also a member of the Court of, of Arbitration for Sport, one of only 400 members for that, uh, who deal with issues that come up, as we will discuss, on a very short-term basis and have to be decided quickly and efficiently. He has been general counsel to the U.S. Olympic Committee, and he works intensively and is widely in demand as an arbitrator and mediator in the sports and entertainment area. Jeffrey, tell us more about your background and what you're now involved in. Well, I started out as a marine insurance and admiralty lawyer in San Francisco. <laughs> nothing nothing like getting too far from where I'm at now, but it really goes to show you the, uh, the strength of law practice and providing us all with uh, interesting career prospects and professional endeavors. Uh, and uh, I did that right out of law school um, and one thing led to another, and I ended up representing uh, athletes and governing bodies. And uh, I, I moved from a smaller firm in San Francisco to a larger firm that did uh, antitrust litigation as well as large commercial cases and IP cases. So I uh, did my fair share of associate-based, uh, as being an associate at a large international law firm, doing um, the grunt work of... Uh, patent and uh, mainly patent cases. Um, and in the course of that, I helped uh, that firm, Coudere Brothers, create its worldwide sports practice group. I ended up um, becoming outside counsel for the United States Olympic Committee on its trademark matters. So I was the guy for a couple of years who ran around suing everybody uh, that would uh, use the rings inappropriately or use the Olympic marks and, and especially the O word, Olympic uh, without consent of the U.S. Olympic Committee, uh, and they didn't otherwise give up right away. So probably 95% of the uh, the infringements we found uh, were accidental, or, and they really didn't put up much of a fight. But there was that 5 to 10% um, of cases that uh, would put up a bit of a fight. But by the time we would get in and uh, get to the TRO stage, it was usually game over. Uh, the USOC has a very strong... IP statute for its trademarks. Congress gave it those strong rights. They're stronger than normal trademark rights. Um, and you can have a look at it. It's in something called the Ted Stevens Olympic and Amateur Sports Act. But there's nothing quite as powerful as uh, showing up with, with um, a very strong statute behind you as a litigator. Um, and uh, it pretty much always uh, 
gave us a solid result. But uh, I did that for a while. Yeah. Though I say that probably spoiled you as a litigator. Here you had this strong statute behind you. and It made things a little easier for you. Yeah, it, uh, it, it certainly did. Um, it, it, uh, we weren't required to prove likelihood of confusion, which is the standard, uh, bar, you know, difficult step to bringing a trademark action. Um, and specifically that was not included in the, in the language that Congress gave the U.S. Olympic Committee, uh, for its trademark. So it, it was extra Lanham Act. It was beyond that. And, uh, it was, you know, an interesting time when you would have to tell people that, um, when they would raise, well, you can't show anybody's going to be confused. And I could say, well, I don't really have to. All I have to show is something called tendency to cause confusion. Um, and that had never really been defined. But, um, when people got to look at that, usually that was when the, uh, settlement, uh, would kick off a pace. And that, so that, I did that. Yeah. No, Go I was going to say that, that led. Oh, please, uh, that led, because I want to talk about, keep talking about how you got there, but I think people who are not familiar with it will be especially interested in the court of arbitration for sport. What, what led up to that in terms of what you've been, what you've been telling us? Well, I had, I had been a, um, it's kind of an interesting story. I, I'd been a, a world ranked athlete in a sport that if you saw me today, you would never be able to guess on the, on the site of me. Since we can't um, see you, tell but, us what the sport was. <laughs> I was a, I was an internationally ranked figure skater at one point in my life. That's wonderful. Um, you, and, have a, you have a yeah. wonderful voice for figure skating. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a, uh, I had a, a passion for sports and how they were organized, uh, and that's what kind of drove me this way. So, um, before I moved in house to the USOC, while I was an outside lawyer, I was notified that I had been selected. Um, as an arbitrator with the Court of Arbitration for Sport, I think, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I know at the time I was the youngest one appointed in the world. This was back in 2000, probably 2000, and early 2001, late 2000. And uh, I think it might have been the youngest one ever, um, but I'm not sure on that point. I was about, what would I have been in 2000? I was about 32 at the time. Um, and uh, lo and behold, within six months of that appointment, I was offered the job of general counsel of the U.S. Olympic Committee. So that kind of threw a monkey wrench in my ability to perform as an arbitrator uh, in the Court of Arbitration for Sport. I think I was selected um, by, uh, at the time, they had to balance out the composition of the of the couple hundred people around the world between people that had backgrounds with international sports federations and with national Olympic committees and with that were there to, you know, safeguard the interests of athletes. They had several different buckets um, and people that fell outside of all that. And I think I was put there, but no one quite knows to this day uh, how any, what, what bucket anyone fit in, in those days. I think I was put there though, uh, from the perspective of safeguarding the, the rights of athletes. So I, um, I, I got that appointment, and then six months later, uh, the USOC came to me at Kudere Brothers and said, would you become our general counsel? Uh, at which point I said, uh, yeah, because I would pretty much always regret <laughs> not saying yes to that. So uh, I did that from 2001 into 2006. I, at the, you know, When I was at Kudere Brothers, I thought that was going to be my dream job, and then I 
the USOC opportunity presented itself, and I thought, wow, that's that's got to be my dream job. And then um, uh, after you know five or six years of doing that and having gone through just really, I mean, the USOC at any given time is either in a crisis or it's in between a cri- between crises. That's kind of how its uh, business life works. I would say right now it's probably in a crisis again, um, but, and we can talk about that later, but, uh, I, you know, after five or six years of, of this, um, it, uh, it was just, I was just bored basically. Um, and I went out and looked for, looked for a job and I, and I ended up, um, coming to LA in 2006. I left the USOC, uh, on my own terms and, uh, Peter Uberoth, who was the chairman of the board of the USOC at the time, asked me to stay on um, to help transition through um, the Torino Olympic Games and and transition into um, whoever else was going to you know come in to replace me. I, I, offer, I, I agreed to do that. I got my new employer to do that. But I took a job in L.A. with uh, a guy named Michael King, um, and it was in the boxing space. So uh, Michael and Roger King are well-known because they had uh, – built the shows uh, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, uh, Dr. Phil, and Oprah uh, into monstrous television hits. It might still be the biggest shows on television. I would imagine that Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy are probably the longest-running shows still on television. Um, and Michael had and his brother had sold the company to CBS um, shortly before I went uh, looking for a job. And Michael... Um, wanted to pursue his real passion with his money and, and that of investors. And that was to try to uh, rehabilitate the heavyweight division uh, in boxing worldwide. And uh, I had grown up with boxing as appointment television in, in my family. Um, I still remember sitting down uh, probably three generations of the family, maybe four even at times sitting down to, uh, to watch uh, Muhammad Ali fight Jeffrey, uh, well, I, Jeffrey I, I have to tell you when you yeah. mention that, since I'm of a different generation, when you talk about appointment for boxing, uh, I remember as a young child listening to the radio uh, uh. Uh, on the Billy Kahn Joe Lewis rematch after World War II. Uh, you know, Kahn, wow. had, because Kahn had come close to defeating Lewis before, uh, he would have won. By on points, if he hadn't gotten ambitious and tried to knock Lewis out, Lewis knocked him out and won. And so this boxing rematch, as you know from the history, was one of the most widely anticipated sports events uh, of all time. And I remember on the radio, well, before television, though it, though it existed, the match wasn't televised. And that was a, a national event uh, that brought everyone, everyone together. So when you mention Ali... Uh, uh, it just brought to mind listening to the Con Lewis fight. Yeah, and and Michael had a very scientific approach to um, uh, at least to the media aspects of boxing. Um, and at the time, in the in the two thousand six to two thousand, you know, call it really probably nineteen ninety nine to the two thousand and six time period, um, boxing had some dramatic changes in its environment. So you, you had a lot of money um, flowing into NCAA basketball and football and opportunities for those athletes to play in 
um, the NFL or the NBA. And a lot of the athletes that were, um, we think that were, uh, in the past historically going to be going into boxing, um, as their sport weren't, um, particularly the big guys. And they were going into these other programs and they could get an education and get, get it fully funded. Um, yeah, there's a whole, and, there's uh, a whole, uh, you know, there's a whole study and I meant much has been done about, uh, you know, the huge impact of sports on social mobility. We see that with, yeah. the, with the very great numbers that are involved today. But sports have always been a major method of social mobility uh, for people uh, from difficult backgrounds, but with the right talent. And it changes, as you say, from time to time. Uh, boxing was, was once the premier entry point. Uh, baseball and football, and certainly now basketball, uh, have become uh, premier entry points. And so this interest in sports that you've had, you know, through your own figure skating, through working with the Olympic Committee, uh, it's just a wonderful background in terms of dealing with all kind of, of, of sports disputes. Uh, but I'm, I think if I can ask you, because it's so interesting to me, I've heard you talk about it in the past. Uh, we'll get back to the mobility and the other issues. But in terms of resolving disputes, which is what you spend all your time doing now as a mediator and arbitrator, um, in terms of resolving disputes, the court of, of arbitration for sport has always been the most, one of the most interesting organizations for me because of the, of the time limits involved and the need for fairness in that kind of environment. Uh, can I just interrupt what we've been talking about? Because I think people are so interested in that to tell us something about the court of arbitration for sport and how it works during the Olympic Games and the experiences that, you, that, that you've had in it. Sure. I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting story. It was born of, I guess it was, it was born before the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta, but prior to the 1996 uh, Atlanta Games, there was an athlete in the United States, a track and field athlete who tested positive um, for a prohibited substance. And he was, he was, you know, prohibited from competing for a period of time, which meant he was going to lose his opportunity uh, to, I think, compete in the Olympic trials and maybe in the games. Um, it, the, the doping world back then was a lot different than it is now. Now it's much more organized, uh, believe it or not. And we can talk about that in a little while. But um, back then it was it was much more haphazard in terms of who the regulators were and what the rules were. But the most notable part about that case was that he had obtained a $25 million jury verdict um, against... Uh, the IAAF, that's the International Federation for Track and Field around the world, and they control uh, who gets to the Olympic Games in essence, uh, and they're responsible for a successful event at the Olympic Games, but they run world championships. Each sport has an international federation that sits over it worldwide that's recognized by the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, um, and there's only one of them for each sport. So, uh, that this entity was called the IAAF, the IAAF, um, and now it's called World Athletics. They just changed their name within the past year or so. Um, but anyway, he had obtained this jury verdict. It was unheard of, and it really scared everybody um, abroad. And this this thing, CAST, that had recently been formed, got some additional attention on it, and they rolled out for the first time at the Atlanta Games as a way to keep people out of court, right? Their nightmare was that 
um, uh, and and today to Europeans, the American uh, the American jury in civil cases is still their nightmare. Um, they had rolled out an ad hoc division at the Olympic Games, and that division was an arbitration a group of arbitrators uh, within the CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport that were on site at the games and would decide the disputes in real time um, at the games as they arose. And uh, everyone that, and that was probably the first time the Olympic entry forms must have been changed, although I'd have to check up on that one. Um, But it's probably the first time there was an arbitration provision put in the entry form for the Olympic games. That continues to this day. Um, The form that you sign to enter the Olympic games um, in many ways, you might consider it like a consumer contract. It's a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Um, LeBron James signs the same form that the Jamaican bobsled team signs, That the obviously for different games, but um, the same form and, int- and requirements that less, much lesser-known athletes all the way up to the superstars. They all sign the same thing. And if they were to try to modify it, their entry would not be accepted in the games. So everyone has to go to this um, court of arbitration for sport ad hoc division at the games. Um, and, you know, it's not a, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting position uh, to serve in. I've appeared in front of the ad hoc division. So until recent, until probably the last 10 years, arbitrators on the list uh, could appear in front of the court uh, as an advocate, but now you cannot do that anymore. Um, I believe that was shut down because of, the feeling that the list is so closed. It's such a small group of people um, that, that sit on the list and you can't, you're, you, you can only, only the people on the list can be appointed as an arbitrator in a CAF case. They can't, you can't bring in an outsider like you could do with other arbitral institutions, um, perhaps other than jams. Um, and you, uh, you know, it's a very, it's a very select group. So the idea that you would show up as an advocate in front of that group, um, people thought was rife with the potential for conflict uh, and conflicts of interest. And so a rule was passed that said you can't do that. But back then, um, you could do that. And I have, I mean, I, I use this example when I teach law school classes um, on, on sports dispute resolution um, to really give a sense of timelines. And imagine, just imagine any, any case, um, like this going forward in California Superior Court on this timeline. It's just, it just couldn't happen. It's impossible. Uh, and culturally, it's very different than what lawyers in, um, California and the state or federal courts are used to and, and, and know about and think about. But, um, first of all, uh, I was, when I was general counsel of the USOC, I sat down to watch the, Americans versus the Russians. And this was the first time that the pros, I think it was the first time that pros had been back in it. They were in it in 98. But this was an epic hockey game. I'm a diehard Pittsburgh Penguins fan. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, and I, I love hockey um, and to watch it and to, especially to watch it live. So this was a special experience for me. So I sat down at this event. I believe we sat down at around 3 p.m. Um, for this game. And shortly before the end of the first period, uh, I received a call from the council that we had in the office um, during that time. And I was sitting there with my deputy. And 
uh, we had been served with a demand for arbitration. So this case involved uh, a fairly prominent person beyond just athletics, um, Apollo Anton Ono. And Apollo had won a gold medal in short track speed skating. Um, and the, he won it on the basis that the referee made a call at the end uh, that, that the South Korean skater had violated a technical rule called tracking. What I could say as a non-short track speed skating person, but I could say basically I think it, the, the violation was that the South Korean skater cut him off impermissibly at the end of the race to try to, to win. And um, that was a judgment call of the referee to be able to make that. The South Koreans didn't like it. And so they, um, they filed an arbitration demand at, at that time. True hockey fan that I am, uh, I made the decision that we could probably sit it out um, through the second period and, and a bit into the third period uh, in order to uh, meet our obligation to respond to the demand, but also to, uh, to catch some good hockey. And so we did that. Um, we ended up finding a, a fax machine at the arena at, at the then Delta Center in Salt Lake City. <laughs> we had the thing faxed to us so we could at least ponder it. But it had us ordered to a hearing at 10.30 p.m. that night. So served at 3, uh, hearing at 10.30 p.m. Uh, and the hearing was going to go as long and as late as it needed to or as early into the morning as it needed to uh, to resolve the issue. And an award would issue in 24 hours if not sooner. So uh, we, we finished the hockey game, ended up going back to the office, put together, we put together a motion to dismiss. It's one of those motions we made, not because we thought it was going to be granted, but because we wanted an extra brief. Basically there was no real provision for briefing. Once you got a demand on that timeline, you should file a response to the demand. And uh, we also filed a motion uh for dis- requesting dismissal on the basis that there was something called the field of play doctrine implicated. So there's a basic concept in sports law that, and this was probably unique to sports law that you don't go back and revisit um, fields of play related decisions. You don't revisit a referee's call unless you can show that the referee was motivated somehow by bad faith, uh, collusion, fraud, some some ill intent or, or or bad action, some other other than getting the call wrong, right? So we see this everywhere. You see this in the NFL. You see it in college football in the United States. You see it in uh, the NBA. There's lots of bad calls that referees make, and there's not a lot you can do about it. If you could show that there was, you know, that the referee was a gambler uh, and had some money on the line, maybe maybe that would make a difference. I don't know, uh, but it hasn't really been pushed. Uh, in the U.S. because I think we take it for granted that you can't undo the decisions of officials in an event, no matter how bad they are. So we we made a we made a filing on that basis, um, and we had the we showed up at the hearing at about ten fifteen in a conference room in it was in a hotel in Salt Lake City. Uh, the three arbitrators were there seated waiting for us. We didn't get to pick our arbitrators; they were picked for us. Um, and the other parties were there, uh, both, there were multiple parties on the side of Apollo. Oh no, there was the USOC as well as the, uh, International Federation that governs, uh, short track speed skating, which also governs figure skating by chance. Imagine those two together. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but for historical reasons, they're the same group. Uh, and we started the hearing. 
Um, and that hearing went on until probably two thirty in the morning, maybe three when we finished it. Uh, we had the operative portion of the award by seven a.m. And I want to say we, I think, well, we definitely had the full award with reasons by 24 hours later, but I think we had it, I think we had it that same day, uh, by the end of that day. We had a very experienced, um, uh, arbitrator, uh, as the panel chair. Uh, he used to be, he had been the CEO of the Premier League, uh, for soccer in England. And, uh, he was at one point, I think he was the president of the LCIA. So he was very experienced in both sports and in arbitration. And uh, uh, he cranked that one out uh, on behalf of the panel quite quickly. That's a timeline that, you know, blows people's minds. Uh, first of all, there's no discovery, right? I mean, the D word in international practice is already verboten. You can't, there's no concept of discovery. You exchange information, um, well, the, which the, is a polite uh, way. The uh, D word yeah. is, is uh, disclosure, which is uh, yeah. a way of avoiding the issue, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Self-reporting, essentially. In theory, laying down everything relevant, but in practice, perhaps uh, not quite. Yeah. And uh, But certainly the notion of depositions or interrogatories, or requests for interrogatories or requests for admissions, there's no... You'd get laughed at if you made that request in the staff environment um, or pretty much any international arbitration environment. So how did um, this turn out? How, how did... The- how, how did what, we what won? Was we won. We kept Apollo's gold medal. I had a slide somewhere in my in my you know my proliferation of slides that I use when I speak. I have a medal count of my own. At least I take credit for them. Um, things I was an advocate for where we won medals. I remember a uh, <laughs> I remember one in Athens, which was like uh, <laughs> it was it was the United States, France, and England lined up against the Germans, right? Sounds a little uh, World War II-ish. Yes. Um, and uh, the German athlete, uh, we were basically, the U.S. was going to increase its, enhance its position from fourth to third if we knocked out the Germans. Um, the French were going to win the whole thing. And I don't, you know, I'm sure there's going to be somebody who's French in our audience, and I don't want to over-stereotype uh, it, but the French did nothing to help us in that case. They, they didn't do anything. Um, the British and the English did everything. Um, we had lawyers on site. Um, I was one of them. I had my team of lawyers. The British had their in-house uh, general counsel. Uh, and we were up all night <laughs> filing, putting together these briefs for a case that involved um, a question of, I believe this issue was one that involved, uh, you know, it was show jumping. And before you begin, you're allowed to circle the horse a certain amount of time before you trot out um, with the horse. And the German athlete violated a few rules in that regard. And our equestrian people in the U.S. brought it to our attention. They filed a challenge on site. That challenge was resolved in a private conference with the German athlete and the German team leader, I believe, and no one else but the officials. <laughs> so we, we raised a due process issue as well. And even though it might have appeared like a field of play decision, our goal was to try to get it out of the realm of field of play and into another kind of violation. And we, I, I can't remember now the nuanced way we did that, but we, we succeeded in that one. So I got a bronze medal in that it, one. How did it finally turn out? Did you get up to third place? Yeah, I got a bronze medal for us in that's that one. That's great, a bronze. I like to say. I, I do want to mention you mentioned the uh, the hockey game, the uh, 
U.S.-Russian yeah. hockey game. For those who haven't seen it, there's a wonderful movie uh, about the story. It's, it's a documentary about the story of the Russian uh, hockey players who came to play yeah. in the United States. It's, I think the title of the movie is Red Army, and it's on many huh. of the streaming services. And for anyone who's interested in the whole range of issues involved in this, which is U.S.-Russia relations, sports, individual ambition, cultural change issues, what happened to the Russian style of play after the Russians came here to the United States, how they finally gelled when they put together on the same team. It's just one of the wonderful sports stories of all time. And this documentary uh, handles it quite brilliantly. So when you when you talked about one of the U.S.-Russian hockey games, I just thought of mentioning uh, uh, that as yeah, well. Yeah, the... I, 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 when it first came out, I was turned on to that by Don Fear, the, uh, the head of the NHL Players Association, um, who mentioned that. And I watched it and I was like, wow, this is fantastic stuff. Um, yeah, if you're into that, it's very, it's very interesting to, uh, to, to watch. And, um, uh, there, there's a figure skating connection there as well because the, the Russian coach, Tarasova, I think is his name, um, had a, had a, daughter who became one of the most prominent figure skating coaches in history so um quite an interesting uh well without, interesting documentary. W- without giving it away it will surprise no one that there were internal politics within the russian hockey world about who would be the coach and what the result would be and yep. how a person who actually was dominant and creating quality essentially the john wooden of, of his time in in uh, russian hockey uh, managed to get people upset, and it's, it's just a wonderful story. But as we talk about the yeah. past, I'd like to move and talk about the issues we now face. I mean, we're clearly in a very complex and challenging time for all scheduled events, whether they be sports or entertainment events. And as both a mediator and an arbitrator, I know you are dealing with these on, on a daily basis. You deal it through your work at jams as a neutral and, and otherwise. So let's, let's talk about some of these very complex issues that are being raised by cancellations. I know famously there is event cancellation insurance. And didn't, didn't Wimbledon have a very expensive event cancellation policy that, 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 that helped them with their cancellation? They did, and so did the NCAA. Or the NCAA I'm, I'm now a new NCAA. AA person, and they've counseled me not to say double A's. NCAA uh, also did. Um, in the NCAA case, the policy, I think they had, a lot of people don't, on its face, they don't understand the economics of how the NCAA works, but the NCAA has ceded football revenue to the conferences um, and doesn't really make any money off of that, although it runs compliance um, for, for, for football. But for basketball, uh, that's their moneymaker, March Madness. And uh, it also is what the NCAA uses to fund their own operating budget as well as to grant money to their member institutions. And in that case, they had um, they had budgeted, I think it was, and it would be consistent with past history, something in the order of $600 million plus um, to parse out to the uh, institutions, which meant that the, inst- that the NCAA itself probably kept, I don't know, I went off ballparking my guess is probably 90 to 100 million so they had you know quite a a big plan for march madness um and they had event cancellation insurance in place and from what i understand 
um, that paid them about $260 million. Um, and they were able to use that money to go out to the, um, to, to take out to the colleges and universities. So they have some, some addition to their operating budgets, but you know, what's missing there is, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's down by, it's, it's a third of what it, what it had been budgeted for and what the, the institutions had probably planned for in their own budgets. So it, the, the insurance situation is an interesting one. I think you start with the threshold question of, did you, you know, did you have it? And if you did count yourself lucky, um, and, uh, if you did have it, um, it's, you know, it's the same sort of, uh, drill that you go through in, um, other insurance situations. The insurer has to ultimately decide whether they're going to pay on it. Um, and I think insurance is going to be key to sports coming back for sure in live events. Um, but, um, you know, that, that coverage decision is often, a not that straightforward. I mean, you have to fundamentally in event cancellation kinds of policies, you have to show that um, the insured had nothing to do with the event. And I'm using it a different way, nothing to do with the, the episode that caused the uh, uh, caused the cancellation of the agreement or the event or whatever it is that's the subject of the insurance. And then uh, the insurance has to, uh, include among its perils the uh, basis for which the cancellation occurred. Um, and in this particular world, I mean, there's lots of people now <laughs> revisiting their insurance buying practices and whether they're going to add this, whether they're going to make sure they take um, communicable disease-specific riders to that insurance. It's down to, you know, like athletic training centers. They, they house athletes. They're changing their releases now to make sure that they include among the many risks that you, uh, you want to keep, a, you, you want to have somebody released to you when they come in to stay at your training center. They now say pandemic or disease. And that really wasn't there. But imagine, you know, imagine how fast a, 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 a disease like this could burn through athletes living in close quarters in a training environment. And it, it's affected all levels of, of the sporting endeavor. Um, at least. Well, I want to specifically ask you about your comment about the uh, the ability to open sports events will depend on insurance. You know, you mentioned that, but in the context, often people don't really focus on the importance of specific insurance to allowing things to go forward. For example, in the, in the entertainment industry, the ability of, of, of the producers, those involved, uh, to get insurance on, on the health and, and, and uh, of uh, stars in movies, for example, if if the individual is not insurable, uh, that effect effectively will often kill the project or that person's involvement. So insurance becomes critical to going forward in many cases. So when you talked about when you mentioned that insurance will be critical to reopening live sports events, tell me what's going to be involved in in, in getting that resolved. Well, I mean, I, I it, on the dispute side, it can be just it can be anywhere in the panoply of, of dispute resolution mechanisms from negotiation to litigation that, that ends up in the middle of it. But I mean, I, when we think of sports, our mind probably naturally goes to high profile sporting activities, right? Like the NFL or MLB or NHL, those, those folks are going to be fine. I mean, aside from some local impacts 
you know, on their staff at the team level and things like that, I, you know, those, those are going to be fine, but there are a lot of sports that don't have the resources that still have a very strong fan base that'll be affected by this. So shortly, shortly after the lockdowns occurred, USA rugby filed for bankruptcy in the United States. USA rugby controls one of the hottest, fastest growing sports um, in the U S if you read the data and the participation data, um, which is rugby sevens, which is in the Olympic games, not the, not the, the full on rugby um, with everybody on the pitch, but rugby sevens is a, is a faster game. And it's uh, the, it's the game that's in the, it's the version of rugby that's in the Olympic games. Uh, that national governing body filed for bankruptcy. So who's running rugby events in this country. Now who's providing the insurance for them to go on, who's providing the licenses and all the rest of that. And, um, you see it in many different forms. Um, I think, you know, everybody's hoping that the next shoe doesn't drop in the Olympic family for these kinds of smaller sports governing bodies. You know, I have not talked to, at one point in my career, I was general counsel and chief operating officer of the AVP pro beach volleyball tour. I haven't talked to them, um, to see, you know, where they are. Um, but I think it would be an interesting conversation. They're, uh, they're an emerging sport still. Um, they're, popular on the two coasts of the United States and in other parts of the world. But the AVP product is, you know, they, they hold a handful of events every year. And if you can't put on events, you don't have product to deliver to your sponsors, which means you don't have revenue and you don't have, uh, I, you know, whether TV, whether they're getting paid a rights fee or not, I don't think they are, but you don't have revenue, basic revenue um, for your sport to keep it going. And, who knows what kind of reserves have been have been kept? So it, it's a it's a multifaceted question, and there's you know there's potential for disputes at at a great many levels, particularly for for those kinds of sports. In the MLB context, the teams own or control access to um, their stadia or stadium. Uh, in the NHL context, you know all the major pro sports. So the idea that there'll be significant litigation arising at least with the venues there is not is not a real possibility but you could see how there could be issues in 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 other aspects of sport i mean i in california we've probably all been through this enough now um you know force majeure you only get if it's written down it's not implied so it's not a it's not a doctrine of contract law it's a it's a clause in a contract and absent absent the presence of a force majeure provision that allows one party to get out. Um, the question comes down to one of frustration, impossibility, or impracticability. And there really is a, a foreseeability element to all of that. So if you entered into an event contract for an event to occur in April, um, and you, you signed that agreement back in October, that's a, not an unusual window. For that to happen, and this this is this applies equally to you know music events, live events of any kind. Um, it wasn't foreseeable that that we would have this worldwide lockdown with four billion people locked down at one time um, that might impact your event. On the other hand, um, if you entered into that agreement in early March, you know there's a real question possibly uh, about whether it was foreseeable that the event uh, might not go on and that might provide an excuse or might not provide an excuse for a party to get out of an agreement in that context. 
So it, it's it's going to be a very fact-driven exercise when these cases start emerging afterward. Well, it's interesting because we're going to be going back, you know, different different doctrines in the law have their moment in the sun where the courts uh, have to focus on them. And we're going to be going back uh, to what the last time many people thought about was in their law school classes on the doctrine of impossibility yeah. in the old 19th century cases involving cotton contracts during the Civil War that were blocked that couldn't be uh, honored by the Confederacy in the post-war uh, post litigation. So the doctrine of impossibility, frustration of purpose, how it applies to excuse for performance or to or to rest or to restitution for funds paid, that those those issues, those doctrines are now going to have their moment in the sun in terms of court resolution, and we'll be back to arguing about things I think that we last intensively thought about in contracts classes in law school. Uh, but aside, yeah, and, I, and funny, and funny enough, it's the same. I, the common law hasn't really deviated that much on this point between England and the United States. <laughs> It's a very similar concept. The civil law countries have a different approach. So if you end up um, with an issue in Switzerland, um, you may have a different outcome because they have codified many of them. I haven't looked at Switzerland per se. Actually, I'm moderating a webinar on this with the Beijing Arbitration Commission on sports contracts and COVID. But uh, coming up for jams, but um, most of the civil law countries have codified force majeure. So it's actually a defense in some way that you can then augment with your contract and go beyond what's in the, in the civil code. Um, so it's a different approach and you might get a different outcome. FIFA, FIFA, interestingly enough, um, and I didn't see this from, you know, you don't see this from any other league, but FIFA um, felt that this was such a pervasive issue um, around the world for soccer um, and that it put out <laughs> a COVID-19 regulatory issues, football regulatory issues flyer. And this thing is like looking at it right now. It's like 16, 15, 16 pages long, single space. And it talks about what happens with employment agreements with players, um, whether there's, you know, uh, whether there's expiring agreements, whether there's new agreements, how they get treated under their regs. They're trying to bring some order um, to uh, what might be a chaotic, uh, a chaotic world, and they've been able to do that probably because of their regulatory structure, which well, is essentially in, in terms in terms of bringing order to a chaotic world. Uh, we've talked about you know we get in the court and you're dealing with all these doctrines, but how many of the issues you're talking about, whether it's event cancellation, licensing, the employment agreements, uh, how many of them do you make an estimate? Do they contain? You mentioned the mandatory arbitration clause for Olympic athletes, uh, requiring everything to go to the court of arbitration for sport. But are there arbitration provisions, to your knowledge, in the kind of things we're now talking about that will come up in terms of sports cancellations and, and employment issues? Or will those go to court uh, unless the parties well, choose to do something else? Yeah, I think most of those are going to end up in arbitration. And even if they don't, they're all going to end up in front of a mediator. We don't know what the dockets are going to look like um, six months from now, but um, in American professional sports, any issues that come up in this area, uh, at least in the employment context of the league and the player, uh, are dealt with by collective bargaining agreements. So that already lays out a comprehensive arbitration scheme uh, in all of the pro leagues in the U.S. The television, for example, television broadcast agreements, they all have, everyone I've ever seen, and I've been involved in a few, they all have extensive dispute resolution provisions um, that 
try to keep the matter out of court and, and in our arbitration as the final end all. Sport is very, even on the commercial side, it's very arbitration oriented and very arbitration friendly, particularly when you get into the international realm, because people need to be able to rely on um, the New York Convention to enforce awards. Um, and there still, you know, to this day, is no convention on enforcing judgments outside of the EU. The EU has its own little convention on enforcing judgments of member states and another member state. But outside of that, there's no there's no treaty that anyone's a member or a party to that makes it easy to enforce a court judgment. So arbitrations become the go-to thing. And we should mention, you know, if I can uh, be explicit about yeah. that so people understand, the court judgment is not enforceable uh, in other countries, uh, as you've mentioned in, in most yeah. circumstances. But under the New York Convention, the international convention that governs arbitration, if the arbitration meets the requirements of the New York Convention, then the arbitration award is recognized by all signatories to the convention. And so explicitly, yeah. that's why people internationally favor arbitration, because so long as you fall within the New York Convention, in terms of procedure and other reasons, you wind up with an award that is enforceable in 130 or 140 countries. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And thank you for that. I should have, I talked at, uh, <laughs> with an assumption of knowledge of everyone that probably isn't, isn't necessarily there if uh, you don't do this work. So, yeah, so the New York Convention is an important part of it, um, international sport. But, I, I mean, I, you can look at, you know, take, take uh, the Olympic television contract. I believe I saw somewhere, because I, I wanted to do some math on some other part of this, but somewhere I saw that the, um, the rights fee for the quadrennium, so the Olympics divides their life into four-year cycles called quadrennium, and for the quadrennium that's, that's in effect now, which culminates in the, it ends with the Tokyo uh, Olympic Games. It started with the Olympic Winter Games in Korea. Um, the broadcasters for the U.S. TV rights alone, uh, NBC, was committed or committed to pay in the, I think it was around 2.1 to 2.4 billion dollars. Let's call it 2.2 as an estimate. Um, and that money gets paid. Uh, in a variety of, in a couple different stages. they First, they have to make a decision about which games gets paid what amount of money. Everybody knows that the Winter Olympic Games, is the Olympic Winter Games is basically eight sports, um, uh, six of which surround what is essentially a figure skating and skiing party, right? Those are the two main sports. You're not, I don't, you know, I don't know, maybe there's a lot of bobsled fans um, out there that watch it a lot. Well, curling. Games, but well, interestingly, curling has become a a uh, must view yeah. sport for amazing reasons yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the the TV contracts say, well, you know, the the Winter Games are only worth. Um, I want to say it's like a third or a quarter of the total contract, and the Summer Games are worth the rest because the Summer Games have thirty five, forty five. Um, federations involved. I mean, there's, there's probably, I mean, the number of events, this one's huge. There's 10,000 people, 10,000 athletes in it. And um, the coverage is far greater than at the Winter Games. And so, you know, you're ending up with two-thirds to three-quarters of $2.2 billion allocated to payment on the occurrence of the Summer Games. I'm sure if you asked NBC, did you just want the Winter Games, they would say no. We we contracted for for both um, with the idea that probably that we had to get we had to buy the summer games in order to we had to buy the winter games in order to get the summer games. 
Well, their payment schedule generally has been, and I don't know if it is to this day because I'm no longer part of it, but from what I've seen in commentary, even with the modern agreements, they pay ten about 10 days before the games go off, winter or summer, they pay half. And about 10 days after the games have gone off, they pay half. So now you have the NBC having bought the winter games and they are delayed to get the summer games for a while. The television agreement may not be um, a huge issue because they didn't have to you know, fund the production, although they've planned it, but that planning can go for a games that occurs a year from now. But imagine if you're the host city, Paris, for the next summer games. Now your runway to, to sell sponsorships has gone down from four years to three years. Or imagine even, you know, even more epically, imagine if you're, if you're Beijing. The winter games was going to be separated or gapped from the summer games by 18 months, and now it's going to be eight months. You know, I've seen the IOC spin on this publicly, but who knows what kind of, uh, of issues are going to be dealt with in that environment. And that's just, you know, that's just a high profile event, the Olympic Games. I mean, this is, this is going on at all levels in uh, the organizing of sport events. And calendars, right? The sporting calendar was always something you could count on. Uh, in the summer in the United States, that's when you launched new event, new, new formats, new sports and the like, because all that was on TV was baseball. Well, now <laughs> if we're all set free from our home confinement um, shortly, you're going to have basketball, baseball, ice hockey. Um, the only thing not going will be the NFL. Um, so it, it's, it's really going to be an interesting and changed environment um, in many, many ways. And the effect that has on contracts and sport alone is going to be uh, really fascinating yeah. to watch. What's amazing so. about this is, is the application and the extent of the issues we're talking about uh, internationally, but especially in Los Angeles uh, and in California, and the extent to which the issues in sports and the issues in entertainment overlap and not just when they contractually overlap yeah. in television contracts but the same sort of issues arise in a group of different yeah. contexts and one of the things that will be very interesting here when all this is done with the applicability of the arbitration clauses and some of these disputes identical disputes going to courts and others to arbitration we will get a real sense of the relative efficiency it may be a few years from now but this is priceless data for I don't mean to say that in just this analytical way, but in terms of understanding the legal system, we will come to understand the differences in efficiency and resolution and satisfaction between arbitration and court proceedings when these issues are dealt with in the in, in a different forum. And Jeff Benz has taken us through the range of these issues. And it's not only sports and entertainment, but in, in Los Angeles, of course, we are critical in the entertainment space, but as well as the sports space. I think Los Angeles is the only city in the United States that has two teams in all five major professional sports, uh, and of course in the center of the entertainment and, and other industry. Also internationally, the issues will come up in international arbitration. And Jeff, Jeff Benz, during this hour, has brought us this unique perspective because he is based in both London as a barrister, arbitrator, and mediator, and in Los Angeles. He's a jams neutral, essentially with a base both in Los Angeles and Century City, uh, and, in, and in London. And it's that combination of his experience, his worldwide scope, and his understanding of these issues 
that has been so helpful to us. Jeffrey, we thank you so much for joining us. This is a vital subject. We've talked about many things that I think people were not aware of before this discussion. It's an ongoing discussion, and we are very grateful for your taking the time to join this podcast and make your knowledge and experience available to all our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you, Howard. My pleasure. Everyone stay well out there. Thank you, Jeff. And I do want to add that if you are interested in the materials that have been covered in this podcast with Jeffrey Benz and would like to learn more about them, Jeffrey Benz has materials that he has written as columns for the Daily Journal. If you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you can access those columns and many other columns and news stories on the issues that have been covered in this sports and entertainment podcast. You simply on the Daily Journal homepage, if you're a subscriber, you can search for sports articles, for entertainment articles, for intellectual property articles that are current or in the archive. And when they come up, you can bookmark them and you can save them for future reading. If you are not a subscriber to the Daily Journal and would like access to those materials, go to dailyjournal.com. When that webpage comes up, you will see in the upper right-hand corner a subscribe button. And if you click on it, you will be sent to all the materials necessary to obtain a subscription to the Daily Journal and have access to all the Jeffrey Benz and other materials that are available on these subjects. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. The Daily Journal has been very pleased to bring it to you. Thank you.